All right, go ahead and open up to Psalm chapter 150, the final psalm in the book of Psalms, chapter 150. Our message tonight is called Hallelujah, and uh, we'll be wrapping this up and starting another series next week. Psalm 150, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 150, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. Praise Yah. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to the abundance of His greatness. Praise Him with trumpet blast. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with tambourine and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise Yah. Praise Yah. Let's pray. Our Father and living God, help us this day to hear your holy word, that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do, through Christ our Lord, and amen. You can be seated. Well, we have uh, finally made it to the end of our study of the book of Psalms, and I hope and pray that your hearts have been stirred toward the things of God. It's certainly been a prayer of mine as I've studied and preached through this. Um, at the very least, I pray that perhaps a renewed interest in the, sal- in the Psalter has captured your heart and mind, and that you will consider spending more time in it, in this grand book, when you're reading your Bibles the Psalms are a veritable gold mine of wisdom and worship, instruction and praise. In fact, the title of this 150 chapter compilation is Psalms. If that wasn't obvious, it is now, right? Psalms, which is actually a reference to the Hebrew verb for praise. So when we say the words the book of Psalms, we are saying the book of praise or the book of praises. That's where that comes from. The aim of this book of praises in the life of God's people is the goal of worship that is due God's great name. Worship that is due God's great name. The Psalms insist on a vigorous and enthusiastic praise and worship that is due God's name and God's glory. We are commanded in Scripture to look at the created order and as a result praise God. In fact, to do otherwise, to look at the created order and praise self is in Romans 1, the definition of idolatry. We are also urged to see God's mighty and wondrous deeds and then praise God in response. We see his creation, we respond in praise. We see his mighty acts, we rehearse some of that in Psalm 78 there, and then we praise God. We are called to consider ourselves as image bearers and then praise God as a result of that. Um, Too much of modern um, pop psychology is looking at the self and only the self. We should be able to look to the self, but we don't terminate anything on the self. We terminate on the glory of God. We worship God as a result. So everything in life is to be arrested by God's glory and find its end, its telos, its goal, in praising the living God. Um, The commentator John Trapp said that the book of Psalms is, quote, the soul's anatomy, the law's epitome, the gospel's index, the garden of the scriptures, a sweet field and rosary of promises, precepts, predictions, praises, soliloquies, etc. He goes on, the very heart and soul of God, the tongue and pen of David, a man after God's own heart. 
There's a lot of richness to be found in the, in the Psalms themselves. And what I'd like for us to consider tonight is our disposition towards God on a most basic level. Our disposition towards God on a most basic level. The highest function of humanity is the praise and worship of God. That is the highest function. We function in a whole lot of other spheres, don't we? We function as, as fathers and, and mothers and husbands and wives, as children, as friends, as family. We, we function in a lot of different spheres. Um, a hat tip to, to Kuiper's sphere sovereignty. Uh, some are students, some are teachers. There's all these spheres that we function in, but the highest function of humanity is the praise and worship of God. In every single area of life, in, in our marriages, our parenting, our jobs, our hobbies, our friendships, uh, our mission, everything, the most basic attitude that we can and should have is one that simply praises and glorifies God. And that's hard to do when it's 3 a.m. and you're changing like the 10th diaper, right? It's hard to like, in this action, I'm going to praise and worship God when you're sleep depraved. And, and I get it. But that's the aim. That's the, that's the high call that we're talking about. Um, an attitude also that frequently ponders his grace, that, that finds it inconceivable to let the habit of prayer fall by the wayside. Um, it's like... Many people, and this is particularly something that happens in, in small groups or men's groups, or maybe it happens in women's groups. I've, I've never actually been in one, but uh, it's sort of like, yeah, I don't pray enough. Okay. No, no, no. It's inconceivable that I haven't prayed today. Like, that should be the attitude, right? That's what the Psalms encourage us in. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is the chief end of man. And so when you wake up, when you lie down, when you gather with, with God's people, when you're eating um, dinner at the table, when you're scattering to spread the gospel message, all of these activities, our comings and goings, should be marked by a deep and abiding joy in God's presence and God's magnificence. And it is very, very easy. We're going to come back to this, but it's very, very easy to just exist and function and grind it out while you're drowning in the day-to-day, -day, with no joy, no happiness, no real emotional connection to the living God, just ho-hum, Scrooge sort of feelings. But we must resist, of course, this temptation, and we must fight for a contentment in God's active presence among us by his Holy Spirit. So the Psalms invite us to, to quiet our busy hearts and our preoccupied minds in order to pause, hit the pause button, and give praise to Yahweh. And we must learn to stop dilly-dallying, stop hand-wringing, and stop being slothful in our praise and worship of God. Instead, God has called us to a life of the permanent exaltation of the triune God. So let's look at our text here. Chapter 150. Chapter 150, it's the fifth psalm in a group of hallelujah psalms, and it forms the, basically the final doxology for the entire book. Now, it's obviously a unique hymn of praise, but what we find here are ten imperative sentences. These are imperatives. They are commands. The psalm itself is an imperative, a command, and the command is to praise God. You must praise God. Now, God can be praised. That is a possibility, but, it, but God should be praised, and that's the responsibility. The very first line and the very, fa uh, the very last line reads, this is in the LSB, Praise Yah. Notice that in verse 1 and at the very end. Praise Yah. 
the very end, praise Yah again. And that's simply the word hallelujah in Hebrew. So the, the word hallelujah encloses the entire psalm. We start hallelujah, we end with hallelujah. And all of life begins and ends with the praise of the living God. That's part of the point here. Now, the only verb that is used in the text is the verb praise. We find that 13 times. Praise, 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 over and over again. Hence the halalel in the Hebrew, the, the verb. That's the only one used there. Praise is repeated 13 times. There, there are no petitions here. There are no complaints. There's no asking God for something. There's no seeking of benefits from knowing the living God. None of that is present. It's just praise. That's it. Look at verse 1. Praise Yah. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. The, the first verse answers, we have a series of questions here, but the first verse answers the question, where must God be praised? Where must God be praised? The first Hebrew word is hallelujah, and the Yah there is a short, obviously a shortened version, Yahweh, um, the covenant name of God, but hallelujah is praise Yah. Some Bibles would just say praise the Lord, but it's not, it's neat. I like what the LSB does with it because it's more specific. The second Hebrew word is hallelujah, which is praise God. And then we see on the third line, this um, hallelujah in Hebrew, praise him. So praise Yah, praise God, praise him. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Uh, where is God to be praised? Well, he tells us in the sanctuary. That's a reference to heaven, the dwelling place of God. All praise and worship is founded upon the presence of God in the sanctuary first. So we're starting in the very heart and soul of the universe. God, where he is in his dwelling place, in his sanctuary, in his temple. Where God is, it follows, praise is to be there. Wherever God is, praise is to be there in conjunction with it. The heavenly host singing and praising God. We see that in the book of Revelation. It's really the only other place we see this type of stuff. It's here in the Psalms. God is, wherever he is, praise is to be there. He's also to be praised in his mighty expanse or the firmament or the sky heavens, the vault of heaven with its stars and planets. All of the things that we look out at nighttime and we see, that is to, God is to be praised there too. Um, even, you know, even looking up to the sky is an act of praise when we ponder and admire God's creative handiwork. So perhaps spending more time outside would be a great prescription for your health. Here in verse 1, God sits on his glorious throne superintending the universe. And as that glory then trickles down from his throne, it comes to the sky and then it comes to the earth. It's like dripping down from the throne room of heaven. And when God is praised... When, when God is praised here on earth, in the heavens, in the sanctuary, when God is praised, earth and heaven are united and brought together. Now, note the word mighty there in verse, the third line of verse 1. Um, that word can be translated as power or strength. Uh, God's holiness and power are highlighted here. And I love what Spurgeon said. He said, power without righteousness would be oppression. And righteousness without power would be too weak for usefulness. But put the two together in an infinite degree, and we have God. Great, great line. Look at verse 2. 
Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to the abundance of his greatness. Here we have another question. Why must God be praised? So where is he to be praised? The heavens, all of that. On earth, he's to be praised. But why? Why is God, why must God be praised? And we ought to praise God for two reasons. First, for his mighty deeds. And second, according to the abundance of his greatness. Mighty deeds is is actually one word in, in the original language, and it emphasizes someone's accomplishments, something that they've done and accomplished. In this case, the acts of God are absolutely worthy of our consideration and our attention. What has God done? What has God done? Um, parents ever have a child come to you and say, I'm bored? Does that never happen? I'm bored. Well, then go watch the grass grow because God does and he loves it. It's a very great lesson on gratitude and thankfulness and contentment. But what has God done? Think about that. I'm bored in my Christian life. I'm bored. Yawn, right? What has God done, though? Well, he's created all things. He's designed the human body. He's rescued Israel. He's forgiven sins in Christ. Uh, He invented the molecule. He's established justice. I mean, can we possibly exhaust the subject of what has God done? No. The sentences here, you'll notice, are very short. They're very punchy. And so it's written that way to just keep us going on the journey. Why else must God be praised? It says the abundance of his greatness. We like to glorify athletes and those who achieve you know, great feats. They're just great. We've even come up with the word goat to describe them, right? The greatest of all time. Greatness, though, is a great word for God. Greatness upon greatness upon greatness, a superlative of greatness. He has acted in the world because God is. So we praise him. So we've moved from God's creation all the way down to God's act of redemption, all of his acts of redemption and saving his people. Praise the creator, the sustainer, and the sovereign of the universe. That's why. You all deserve to praise him. You, like, none of us deserve to do that, but by his grace, we've been brought into this uh, uh, mercy where we can look to him and praise him, and it's due him. And in fact, I don't know that you can even fully understand Christianity and what Christ has done if you're not leaping for joy at the thought of praising God for what he's done in your life. Look at verse 3 through 5. We're going to answer the question, how must God be praised? Praise him with trumpet blast, with harp and lyre, with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments instruments and pipe. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. There's a reason that these are here, and I'm going to explain why, but the, the trumpet blast pertains to the crowning of a new king, and you can see that in 2 Kings 9.13. You can see it other, other places when Jehu becomes king, and uh, they, they sort of do a triumphal entry for him, which is what happened with Jesus, of course, but there was a trumpet blown for Jehu and others, Solomon as well. Um, so the trumpet's there because it's a, it's a coronation ceremony. We have crowned a new king, the trumpets blast. Uh, the harp and the lyre, they are both stringed instruments, and those were uh, used by the Levites, and oftentimes they would, the Levites would use them in the temple worship, and they would sing the psalms with that. You can see that in 1 Chronicles 15, verse 16. You can see it in chapter 16, verse 5, and you can see it in chapter 25, verse 6. If you want those verses later, let me know. Tambourines and dancing 
All of that reminds us of the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem under David's watch. That was 2 Samuel 6. Um, in this particular procession of events, Yahweh, they're bringing the covenant back, the, the Ark of the Covenant, um, where God sat on the mercy seat. Yahweh's coming back. They're bringing him back to the temple sanctuary. This was before the temple had been built under Solomon. But this was uh, something that happened under David's watch. And you might remember back from the study of the judges, there's an overlap from the time of Samson and also in that early stages of, of uh, Samuel and his ministry. So Yahweh's coming back to the temple. Stringed instruments and pipe um, and maybe a flute or something similar to a flute, but resounding and clashing cymbals are only mentioned here and in the Chronicler, First and Second Chronicles. And striking them together, of course, as someone who's played the drums, striking them, of course, with a drumstick is one thing, but typically you would strike them together and it would make a clashing sound and a very, very loud sound, of course. Uh, a great way to wake up a sleeping child who's slept in too much. <laughs> strike the cymbals. It's biblical. Get up, praise God. Get out of bed. So quite probably, though, this is a reference to war. The cymbals are a reference to war, specifically the day of the Lord when Yahweh would come for judgment and God would bring judgment against his enemies and he would deliver and vindicate his people. So note that this polyphony of praise is liturgical. There's an order to it. It's liturgical in that it reflects a certain cosmological belief about Yahweh's presence with his people. Note what's happening here. We've gone from praise him in the heavens, into the sky, into the, into the, the vault of heaven as it's often referred to. Praise him uh, on earth here as God's people. We praise him together because of his mighty deeds, his greatness. And then there's like this train of thought here. Yahweh's crowned king. We worship him in the temple. We bring the covenant, Ark of the Covenant back to the temple. And then what happens? God judges his people and he judges his enemies. He restores his people, but he brings justice to the enemies of God. There's a train of thought here. It's liturgical. It's a worldview about who God is. He is the creator, but he has come down and he stooped low to his people. That's our God. So there are steps in the process, each of which are reflected in certain musical emphasis. Who knows exactly how this psalm would have been sang in the temple. We don't, we don't actually know. Now the trumpet is Yahweh's coronation ceremony, God becoming king. The tambourine and dancing, Yahweh's glory entering the temple. It's a microcosm of God's presence with his people, something the world anticipates for. That's why Pentecost is so significant. Because Yahweh has now come, Jesus has sent his spirit, and he takes up residence in us. And we are the temple. So talk about a cosmology and a belief of the world. We are that temple presence. And symbols are brought in to underscore Yahweh's judgment and salvation in the final day when the world is put to rights. So you can see there's a lot in this psalm, more than meets the eye. Look at verse 6. The last verse answers the question, who, who must praise God? Let everything that has breath praise Yah. Praise Yah. Who must praise God? The answer is, of course, everything that has breath. Perhaps more literally, uh, every breath praise Yah. Breath is, of course, imagery from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. You remember that uh, God breathed life into Adam, fashioned him out of the ground, 
had breathed into him and that made him alive in a way that he wasn't. He was just sort of a pile of dirt and then God brought him, brought him to life. Um, all of humanity has life through the vehicle of God's breath. Job speaks of this frequently. Um, Isaiah 42.5 speaks of this as well. I'm going to read a couple from Job in a second. But if God removes his life breath, man would turn to dust. That's Job 34. So only humans, by the way, only humans possess as the crown of glory this special breath. Animals are not in focus here despite their ability to take in oxygen in their lungs. Job 32a reads, But it is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. Job 33 verse 4 says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Isaiah 42 verse 5 speaks of Yahweh who gives breath to all people. So it logically follows then that since our breath belongs to God, that our praise belongs to God as well. Uh, I think it was Thomas Watson who said something, uh, every, every, um, every inhale is an inhalation of mercy. So we breathe oftentimes without thinking about it, right? And we're just... Taking, in oxygen, taking it in, expelling it out. It's all mercy, praise. Breathe in mercy and grace, expel, exhale uh, praise and worship to God. So all of humanity is invited to join in the song of praise for the God who grants and sustains life. The book of praise began with God's Torah being a way of life. Remember that from Psalm 1? And it ends with God's praise being the activity of life. We start with God's Torah being a way of life and we end with God's praise being the activity of life. Um, think of it this way. Uh, I'm say it, say it a little bit differently. Walking with God means following his path with Torah lighting the way and doing so with a smile on your face and a song on your lips. It is the language of life. This is the language of life. We express our humanity best in giving praise to God. We breathe in his mercy, we exhale his, in praise. And the final line brings us all back around to us, hallelujah, praise Yah. So then how shall we live? I, I mentioned a bit ago that in this psalm, that we have no enemies to curse here. <laughs> we've, we've already done that in our study. Uh, there's no needs to fulfill. There's no requests to be made. There's no Torah to take in. There's no civil magistrate to berate and excoriate. <laughs> Think of Psalm 2. Uh, there's no benefits to cash in on here in this psalm. There's none of those things. All of these things that we've seen all over the psalms, none of that's here. What we have is the highest function of humanity, that being the praise and worship, the fear and enjoyment, the glorifying and honoring of the living God. That's all that's here. And it all boils down to three words. This is my summary of, of Psalm 150. God, therefore, responds. Kagito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. No, no, no. God, therefore, responds. That's it. That's the logic. God, therefore, responds. This is really a summary of our lives, isn't it? God, therefore, responds. Even for the unbeliever, he still lives and moves and has his being because God simply is. No one escapes the God, therefore, response paradigm. It's an ineradicable state of affairs. God, the necessary precondition for every aspect of life, is inescapable and inexorable. 
Um, it's just always that. It's always God, therefore, response. We start with God, we end with God. We start knowing who he is. He's revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's revealed himself in his word. Therefore, response. Therefore, life of obedience. Therefore, life of mortifying the flesh. Therefore, repentance and faith. God, therefore. And we have a response Ability, the ability to respond. And this responsibility means that we owe our thinking and breathing and analyzing and speaking and scientific endeavors to the triune God. Even, think of it this way, even the autonomic functions of the body are there because of God. The fact that the heart keeps going, the lungs keep doing what they do, it's just incredible. Your autonomic nervous system that can be taxed and cause problems but there's a reason we call it autonomic it just it just goes god therefore responds the heart beats think of the liver detoxifies the mind formulates the vocal cords vibrate everything functions this way because god so why wouldn't we praise him and the writer urges all men and all nations to praise the creator god we have we have no more reason to breathe than we do to praise God. The reasons are the same. And you might say, well, maybe, but my life, my life would be over if I stopped breathing. You don't understand how serious that is. My life would be over if I stopped breathing in air. To which I would reply, well, and yet, even that breath is a gift. <laughs> do you think your life would be over just as quickly were you to refrain from praising God with the very breath he has given you? Would it? Would your life be any more over should the sovereign God say, time's up? We've all walked through that. We've all lost people we've loved. Accidents happen. Health issues develop. These things happen. But we already know that the Bible tells us to teach us to number our days. We already know that there is a clock, and it's God's clock. It's not ours. But do you think you have more of a right to breathe than you do to praise God? That's what is at issue here. The lungs obey the word of Christ. Your body holds together because the word of Christ holds it together. He holds all things together, Colossians tell, tells us. So make sure that your hearts obey the word of Christ, right? That's the logic. Your lungs are doing it. You're inhaling, exhaling all day, several times a day. The heart beats thousands and thousands of times every day. Give God the glory. This psalm, with its repetitive and relenting insistence on the praise of God, illustrates for us the aesthetic aspect of creation. I want to speak to a moment about this. Music and instrumentation, along with dancing and singing, speaks of the beauty, the harmony, and the enjoyment of the created order. So what is the aesthetic aspect of creation? Simply put, it is the deep appreciation, gratitude, and enjoyment of the whole harmonious and beautiful integration of life in God's world. So there's all these various... Dewey has 14 aspects of creation. Aesthetic is one of them. And in all of us function in these various ways. They each have their own unique way, and one of them is the aesthetic part. I want to de define that again. It's the deep appreciation, gratitude, and enjoyment of the whole harmonious and beautiful integration of life in God's world. 
So when we sit down to eat at Thanksgiving, coming up, can't believe it's already coming up. When we sit down to eat at Thanksgiving, the, the table is set usually in beautiful, organized way, right? With special plates, sometimes special napkins, <laughs> perhaps special drinks. And I always like, at my mother-in-law's house, there's a little glass cup for the cranberry sauce. So we smell the food, we taste the food, right? Uh, there's outward, we express outwardly in verbal appreciation for those who prepared it. Uh, a few years ago, we had a, a power outage all day. So we ended up having to like get creative with how we were going to make Thanksgiving dinner up in Hershey. It's quite fun. I'll never forget that. But we enjoy it, right? We're sitting there. It's a pleasing experience. It's not something we necessarily go all out for every day, but we do this during Thanksgiving. Um, some for Christmas too, but we, there's smells, there's tastes, there's laughter. We, we, oh, thank you so much for bringing over your sweet potato stuff. That is just so good. The, who doesn't love green bean casserole? If you don't like it, you're wrong. Um, perhaps there's music in the background and isn't just lovely. It's just an enjoyable aesthetic experience. Perhaps we laughed a little bit about something that happened uh, the day before. But the aesthetic aspect of creation is, is finding life interesting, it's finding life curious and enjoyable. Uh, it motivates us to discovery and wonder, perplexed by the universe, perplexed by the, the atom, everything from the atom to the skies. We're, we're, there's discovery there, there's wonder, there's excitement, there's coherence like a symphony with different instruments all coming together to play one piece. And were you to just hear one of the instruments, it would sound like a terrible thing. But you hear all of them come together. It's harmonious. It's beautiful. There is, there's leisure. There is rest. There is surprise. There's beauty. There's creativity. There's art. There is unity in diversity. And this means that we who have been changed by God, the Holy Spirit, can tap into this powerful aspect of creation in order to glorify God. Some of you just prefer being out in the woods and enjoying a hike, and that's really your, that's how you connect with the Lord. And some would rather just pour themselves over the scripture. Some would rather pick up a guitar, maybe play the piano. But that's all of, that's a beautiful expression of our life in God's world. So we can glorify God, but how? Well, we are not looking for hackneyed, stale worship with the mind and heart completely disengaged. Worship is obedience in all of life. So if your life is marked by drudgery, stoicism, bitterness, strife, envy, then of course you'll not be quick to find delight in a sunset or find enjoyment in playing a card game. If bitterness is in your heart, you won't laugh at a good joke, a great joke. If you're lacking a most basic joy, you won't have much to sing to God about, will you? What we have here in Psalm 150 is the casting aside of the sin that so easily entangles, the stripping away of all worldly concerns and, 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 and worries, uh, the, wor the urging for all of humanity to take a deep breath and belt out a praise to the God who is there. We have the breath of life, therefore we are walking, talking, creating musical instruments that exist in relationship to God and his creation, and we must, as a result, expend our energies accordingly. All of you are instruments. 
You are a walking musical instrument. And you can sing, and you can hum, and you can praise the living God. The Christian religion, by its very nature, is celebratory and rapturous. There is no such thing as dullness in the Christian life. Not when Christ has forgiven your sins, and certainly not when Christ was raised from the dead. Jesus is enthroned. Praise him. If you, if you can't think of a reason to adjust your attitude, to rid yourself of the cantankerousness, then you're not paying attention and you're certainly not trying to exhaust the inexhaustible gospel. Think deeply about what you have, dear church. Your sins have been forgiven by the living God. The judge of the universe sees the righteousness of Christ on you. Is, it, is that not worthy in and of itself about singing for, for days upon days upon days? Could we not praise God with singing and dancing and instrumentation for hours upon hours, given what we have in the gospel? That's why I enjoy my trips to Africa where I spend four hours watching them dance. I don't dance. I'm tall and I'm very white. (laughs) And it looks awkward with a bunch of Africans who are singing in a language I don't understand. So I smile. I'll just open up the Bible. I might raise my hand a little bit. I'm not super charismatic, but man, what a response to the living God. What a response. So church, enjoy God. Enjoy God. Be exuberant in your heart towards him. Be filled with enthusiasm and fervor for his word, for his creation, for his law instruction. Be mesmerized by his presence in the world, his presence within you. Be flabbergasted by his deliverance and salvation in your life. Be humbled and eager to, thanks to his lordship over every single detail of your life. Set aside your distractions for a moment and focus on God and and Him alone. That's the Psalms. That's how we end the Psalms. This refocusing process ought to be a daily practice, and I know it's hard, but let me tell you, it's for your good, and it's worth fighting for. That's something that me personally am fighting for. Our mere existence is to experience God's goodness and loving kindness. The fact that you're even here alive today is a testimony to his goodness. To experience God's goodness and mercy and loving kindness is to be indebted to him, to owe him much gratitude, to owe him praise. And there is no, what have you done for me lately in God's economy? Yeah, you forgave my sins, but what, what have you done this week for me, Lord? That doesn't exist. That's not a thing. The mere ability to ask such a stupid question is evidence of this great debt. How selfish. Yeah, you forgive my sins, Lord. I know you're, I know you're enthroned and I, uh, you just, your blessings have kind of, you know, I don't know if somebody accidentally built a dam and I can't get through, but what have you done for me lately, Lord? What an attitude. We have been given so much in Christ the restoration of God's image in us, forgiveness of sins, justification by grace alone through faith alone. Even the faith exercised is a gift. We've been given a down payment on resurrection life. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have the presence of the Creator God magnified here in the Psalms, seated right at the very center of our very being in our hearts right now. In Christ we have it all. God therefore responds. 
And look at the last line, and we'll end here. The last line of verse 6. Just when you think you've finished, we begin anew in our praise of Yahweh. We start off, praise Yah. Where? Why? How? Praise Yah. This is truly the song that never ends. It's a song of praise that marks our life. It never stops. It never lapses. It never runs out of a melody. You never get bored because you can think of a billion reasons right now to sing praise to God. And this praise, it's, it's, it's a song. It reorients our lives. It reestablishes our vision. It, it, it reinvigorates our hearts. May we all praise Christ the King. Let's pray. Father, oftentimes we are very much fickle and oftentimes we fail to realize the immensity, the magnitude of your presence with us. God, would you guard us from a, a spiritual boredom that marks so many people? This whole hum, day in, day out drudgery that many call Christianity, it's not true. It's a lie. We have so much to praise you for, so much to give you glory for. And the fact that we can even do it is testimony to that debt. So Father, I pray that you would light a fire in us, deep in our bones, that not a, not a minute would go by, not an hour would go by where we haven't stopped and paused and contemplated your greatness. And may your Holy Spirit, the hound of heaven, be after us. Do whatever it takes, God, to break us. To break us down and build us up so that we can be like your Son. Help us to praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.